Often I look out at the lawn and see lengthy strips of bark strewn all about. Their top sides lavender or mauve, terracotta on the reverse, and scattered leaves like a shattered Roman ruin, torn fragments of tan and dun. The wind is a vandal. That is plain to see. The wind is an archaic tool. It coppices the forests, saws off the weak branches. Wind. A bulldozer. But in the chaos and swirl of it all, I think of seeds and pollen as well. So the wind is a matchmaker. Maybe the wind is a chaperone. The wind is a mediator. The wind is a mother. The wind is a nuisance. And it's okay to say this, but you'll have to say it loudly, obviously. Because the wind is a foghorn. The wind is a persistent whistle. A warbling drone. A neighbour who plays music endlessly. A yapping child. The wind is also an enemy with ancient weapons. All sword and scimitar. Spears and arrows. Fired from the southern or western parapet. Whittled down fine points that pierce your defences. Yet the wind is also flippant, whimsical, trivial. It flutters, it threads, it lifts at the last minute. The wind is like a playful dog that doesn't get that you might not want to play. Even birds can be troubled by the wind. There are birds that try to be wind, like cyclones in miniature. But maybe they try too hard, for they lack wind subtlety or variability. For some birds, however, the wind is earth. A bird finds equilibrium in the wind. The wind is its wrestling partner. I have watched a falcon catch the faintest stray breath in its feathers and go off into the distance. I have seen a cockatoo billow like a sail. Instead of rock, 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 it went whoop. The wind is the greatest vector in the world. It makes things happen. It induces, evokes, disrupts, excites. The wind meets the skin first, but its firmest contact is with the heart. The wind brings news. The wind is the messenger, Hermes gallivanting to us from afar. Strange to say, but the wind connects. Like lines of poetry, it suggests affinities. The wind is language. And even here the wind bears the scent of mulga and spinifex, the fresh emptiness of Antarctica. And I have heard the echoes of Spanish and Fuegian in a westerly. I have heard the voice of ghosts, lost sailors, someone's ancestors.
wind is air displaced. So the wind is an exile too, a wanderer lost, perhaps looking for a place to rest, despite its tendency to rush on past, its restlessness. The wind is a murderer. I'm not trying to make excuses for it. Look through the glass panes of my double doors and you will see the wind has no care for us whatsoever. But the wind is a painter too. The wind is a bomb. The wind laughs and cries and we are always laughing and crying along with it. The wind could well be a god. been a cosy place to hang out for the winter, this train carriage that I live in. A retreat from cold and discomfort, a sort of hermit's hideaway. Whoever dragged the wagon up here in the first place picked a nice spot. They chose the right aspect, didn't open up the forest too much, made sure it felt enclosed, a comfy shack embraced by the trees so that when the bad weather comes you don't have to worry you'll get blown away. The biggest and nearest eucalyptus bends away from the carriage on the far side of the wildest winds, so it probably won't fall on top of me or my car. I curl up under the curved, corrugated iron roof and hear twigs and other debris come down like a scattering of birds crash landing, but with insufficient force to interrupt my solace. The roar of wind and rain usually just help me concentrate on reading and writing. I'm not tempted to do much else. And there's been plenty of wind and rain this winter now gone. 
I read the other day that there were record gusts on the mountain down south. So brief hurricanes have scoured the highest places. But the weather in this part of Tasmania doesn't usually stay too bad for too long. Mountains absorb most of the worst of it, and fronts buffet their way across the island in quick succession. Yet although each season has its appointed conditions, it's not consistent, so that the loveliest, stillest days can come midwinter, and summer can surprise you with floods on top of bushfires and heat waves that culminate with snowfall. Personally, I like this, and it's why I choose to live with mountains as neighbours. Blessed are those capable of enjoying surprises, as I was once told, and so it is in Tassie. Four seasons in a day, as they say. The weather coming from all the world within a single hour. Gusts from distant countries. Ocean landing in the middle of the island. Of course, it can still be dangerous. Not too far from where I live is a certain peak named after a young man who died of hypothermia a hundred years ago. He was out hunting and clambered up onto an exposed ridgeline when he got lost in fog. He must have been soaking wet, and then the wind would have cut into him like the slashes of a knife. Around him the world faded to grey, his body unable to produce enough heat to catch up the warmth he'd lost. The corpse of his dog was also found curled up at the young hunter's feet. The name of this unfortunate young chap was also Bert, and by chance I happened to know very well the mountainous region in which he perished. Oddly, they say his death was what brought tourists into the area in the first place. Perhaps because it brought the search party into the region, and then someone had the idea of creating emergency shelters up there. Subsequently, I have been for years guiding groups up the same sort of ridge, all pinched and gnarled, billion-year-old rock onto a plateau where the weather could be ruthless and unrelenting. It's the sort of place that seems benign most of the time, and then people rock up underprepared and die. There are days when you walk bent over like the wind-pruned pines, which lean desperately to the east and wear furry lichens and fuzzy moss on their southern faces. You don't stop for fear that you'll seize up and turn into an ice block. You can't see into the distance whatsoever, so the world is just a small, tightly bound arena of white. I count such days as memorials to the young Bert who died with his dog a century ago. A reminder that even places you know well can become perilous, and that elemental forces like wind, rain and rock are more powerful than us. But that's at least partly why I like walking in mountainous country so much. Here I'm not so far off as the cockatoo flies, but I'm in the lee of those weather-attracting altitudes. I mostly see the echoes of these weather events, the leftovers, the aftermath. But even this can still bear a certain intensity. I remember one evening sitting with a friend, with the doors wide open, watching the gum trees in their hundreds swishing and swaying, xylem creaking like countless frogs, 
the timber bending but not breaking. We sat in silence, let the wind and wood do the talking, but all that energy still filled the train carriage. Eventually it died down. Night descended as well. My friend left, but soon returned to borrow a hacksaw so she could cut up a silver wattle that had fallen across the road. And the remnant noise was only that of the branches faintly scratching each other, bedraggled bits of bark suspended and swinging listlessly, and the owls hooting authoritatively, as if it was them that called off all that commotion. Beyond that, you could also sense the strange, echoey silence that comes after a big storm, such as I might feel today, now that winter's over and spring has come. This is a phenomenon that has no word in any language I know, but is one of the most familiar experiences of which I can speak from my time in the bush. It is something like relief. wind. I hate the stuff. So said the bloke at the local rubbish dump when I went to drop off my recycling on a blustery day, and when I drove through the piles of landfill I could see why. The dystopia of the tip was even more depressing as each gust made sheets of garbage flap and blow. Curling up in your tent in the same conditions can also be disturbing. You feel like you're sleeping in a plastic bag. And suddenly the whole thing seems a very flimsy contraption and you worry all night that the structure won't hold. And sometimes it doesn't. I remember a night camped with a mate on a mountainside. It was like the wind was hammering down on the tent with giant furious fists, repeated blows until finally it snapped one of the poles. Well, I say I remember, but actually I snoozed through it all. My mate said it was the worst night's sleep he's ever had, though. Southwesterlies like these have as their source the unpopulated Southern Ocean, and sometimes you can tell they've reached you without feeling the presence of humans. If any presence on Earth is pure, it must be a Southwesterly until it reaches the local tip at least. But of course it can drive you to distraction. Two centuries ago, the missionary George Robinson found himself wandering around this island writing a journal. 
he noticed an Aboriginal warrior brandishing his spear at gusts on particularly windy days. I have been tempted to do much the same. In fact, I remember once trying to whack it with a hefty stick, like a cricket bat. But I must have missed. Yet wind is just like rain or rock or light or vegetation, in that it gives a place its character. Perhaps because it's invisible we give it less credit. But in classical Europe, the different winds were given characteristics, abilities, special powers. In some of the old stories, a wind might kidnap someone, give assistance, or start a family. The northerly wind crops up in a bunch of their yarns. Boreas is what the ancient Greeks called it. And one of the great intrigues of ancient European geography was the source of good old Boreas. It seemed to live where the sun was not, beyond a mysterious, perhaps mythical, range of mountains, which is also where certain swans and geese disappeared to in the appointed season. These ancient Greeks, of course, did not have a clear picture of the poles, neither Arctic nor Antarctic. Nor did they fully understand the Earth's place in the solar system. These geographers also wondered whether or not Hyperboreans existed, that is, humans who lived even beyond the source of those north winds. And some of them believed that female farm animals, mares, sows and cows, were impregnated by this wind Boreas. They did, after all, often turn their rear ends to that strong wind and soon after give birth. Eventually I went to a Hyperborean country, Iceland, to encounter the northerly. And I must say that those Icelandic ponies did not look like they were being impregnated, not when I saw them. With stoic indifference they bore every blast. Even their hipster hairdos were unaffected by the gales. On the other hand, I was a mess. Walking into the stout gusts, my own mane was styled wildly. My beanie would be lifted off my noggin and my long locks flailed about uncontrollably. The Gore-Tex of my raincoat flapped and thwacked. At times I would turn around and walk backwards, letting my big backpack bear the brunt. I didn't get pregnant either. But the various cords and straps attached to my gear kept getting knocked loose and then would fly up, swinging around in front of me, sometimes slapping me in the face. The artist I'd come to meet on that northern peninsula told me he'd once been hunting birds on the moor on a windy day. He roused a ptarmigan, but as soon as it got a foot in the air, the wind picked it up and curled it a long way into the distance, as a striker does to a soccer ball at a free kick. It seemed I might soon get spirited away like that too. At one point I had hardly been able to proceed forward, so fierce was the wind. Instead, I did my best to stand firm and simply absorb the energy of the Arctic, in the attitude of those horses, perhaps. Although I couldn't help but grin. It was fun. And in a strange way, I felt that I was part of a dance. Man and hurricane. There was all sorts of movement. Nothing elegant, but somehow beautiful in its own way. 
I threw my arms out wide to catch the wind and felt my torso flex to bear the strain. My clothes shook. My hair was in a frenzy. I waltzed with wind. I bounced with Boreas. That wind is a great distance from me these days. But the gusts and gales imprint themselves on one's memory. As with those trees you might see in exposed spots that bend or lean or bear a hunchback. Our experiences in different locations are pruned and shaped by winds. Even the gentle breezes bring reminiscences. Yes, with my mate that night the tent broke. But in the morning sun shone and we scaled the mountain in clear conditions. You could see the silver wattles far below letting the air through their pretty leaves, gently knocking loose their pom-pom blossoms. Likewise, the wind had stilled when I at last, in a show of resilience, made it to a headland in the Arctic Circle, where I found a gravestone made of an old slab of gabbro stone. Above us, turns darted, their speed unimpeded. Here a Spanish sailor had been buried, a couple centuries ago, facing north. When I asked a local fisherman why, he said, seafarers know their winds, that's for sure. They're often the ones who have named them. And maybe this memorial was an homage to that relationship, a suggestion that the sailor's life could somehow carry on, something of him entwined with that invisible but invincible energy. Never forget, he said, the world is made by wind. And we breathed in deep and so caught the scent of seaweed, salt, stockfish, ice, turn shit, and maybe a hint of melancholy. We must also concede that music comes with the wind. We displace air when we sing or whistle, or push breath through a trombone or clarinet. I have not forgotten the yoga teacher in India, who on a windy day down by the Sangam, the confluence of several rivers in Maharashtra, told an old fable which ended with spiritual instruction. My boy, she said, 
You must let your heart become Krishna's flute. And I have at times in wild weather opened up my throat and hoped to hear the wind blow through and play some sort of sweet melody. But here in this forest, far from Krishna's stomping grounds, the song is mostly a kind of fluttering or tearing, a whipping or a roaring, carrying the odd hoot from a karawong or a grey shrike thrush's whistle. The wind makes what you hear, and the wind also produces much of what you feel. You may have heard the story about the Californian conservationist John Muir, who climbed a tree in the midst of a storm to experience what the treetops must. Admittedly, Muir was kind of batty. For there is something to be said for the splendid madness of wanting to meld your experiences entirely with the bush. Why not give it a go? Plunge into cold air, immerse yourself in explosive gusts, learn to embrace the weather, whatever it is, to see if you can't become a part of it. I have looked into the forest beyond the front yard on the windiest of days and seen green rosellas out there in the uppermost branches of gum trees, where the branches are their most springy and supple. They seem to cling on for dear life as their perch bends and sways. But birds are, of course, closely connected to winds. They read the roads written into airways, which to us are unseen apart from the effects. Our avian friends are finely honed, often attuned to conditions for flight. It's as if they sense the shift in atmospheric conditions deep within their feathers. In the southeast of England I went walking on a calm and sunny day. From a modest hill I saw one of those gliders set off, their pilots manoeuvring them through the gentle currents of air, the wafting breezes that would guide them. And perhaps it was only my imagination, but the contraptions themselves seemed to creak like bits of balsam wood. Then, as if in an act of mockery, a kestrel appeared, at a lower height, hovering over the hillside, eyes keenly trained on some small critter had hoped to make its lunch. A fellow walker had also stopped to watch the aerial displays and pointed at the raptor which hung in position like a puppet, flapping furiously to keep to the one spot, like a swimmer treading water. This other walker was a man in his forties, well-dressed, smartly kitted out. He pointed at the kestrel, and in a fulsome accent said, That is what we call, where I come from, a windfucker. Oh, to be so intimate with the wind. This morning I myself decided to scramble up one of the nearby gums to experience the wind at that level. Although the breeze was not so boisterous that I felt I might be tipped right out. The leaves around me were gently gossiping and the higher branches swayed gingerly as I looked down on the ground, my native terrain, the spot where I place my nest. But at the same height as me, I knew I might find the perched cups and hanging domes of currawongs, shrike thrushes and wattle birds, possum holes and insect breeding grounds, the habitats of countless other critters, who exist nearer to the air's most erratic actions, who perch in high places, who lay eggs in precarious positions, who make love in the open, 
who dream on the wing and play their trumpets and sing. It seems to me that such animals have evolved to deal with the climate's worst behaviour. They just dip their wings, adjust the shape of their tail, tilt, turn back and attempt a different approach. The question comes to me more and more frequently. How quickly can species adapt to unpredictability? I recently read an anecdote about monarch butterflies who migrate from Canada to Mexico in the Northern Hemisphere summer. It was said that over Lake Superior, the whole flock would make an unexpected left-handed turn to the east for some miles before assuming their southerly path again. This writer suggested that perhaps they were avoiding a glacier which was present some millennia ago but is no longer there. Which made me wonder, could we too be that slow to change our habits? Lately I have been wondering if the word wind shouldn't be a bit longer. If a single syllable is not insufficient to sum up the eternal peregrinations of air in motion. If this is not too short a synopsis for the story of a wanderer. I go raiding all the dictionaries I own, looking up what the wind is called in other languages. Nothing seems quite right. The words are too bland, too blunt, too elegant, too ornate, too simple, too ordinary. I realise that what I want is a word that sounds like an endless stream of sounds, like the title of some Welsh train station, or worse. A word that with some grammatical knack changes its tone halfway through depending on what sort of wind you're talking about. A word that blows and roars, that swerves or alters its direction, that breathes in a dry gasp or bearing moisture. A word that occasionally spins out of control. Perhaps this dissatisfaction says something of the mood I've stumbled into these past weeks. A bit of the old Anthropocene blues. A sense that the future of the earth is slipping away. That all the changes to climate and country are beyond reversal or repair. It's a feeling that some writers have called solastalgia or species loneliness. 
Sometimes I experience it as species shame or an awareness of simple cognitive dissonance. The disparity between what I believe and how I behave. I am overwhelmed by my human urge to make meaning of everything and yet continue to live in willful contradiction to the things we have learned. We are making a mockery of our knowledge. We carry on causing ecological chaos. Wreckers, like those tremendous gusts, Antarctic sou'westerlies or Arctic northerlies, willy-willies, tropical storms. I have strayed into certain cliches to do with the wind. In the 60s it was said that there were answers blowing in the wind. In the 80s and 90s, winds of change were apparently wafting through. But where are these benevolent breezes now? I'm afraid of the prevailing winds at the moment. They're the winds that harry and worry us, that scare us and bring despair. Unrelenting gusts that blast from surprising quarters and disorientate us time and time again. There are strange, swirling forces that seem to be building into violence. Are these the winds we can expect from now on? Or am I interpreting the scattered leaves and shaken trees the wrong way? Some of the old languages used the same word for breath, wind, and even spirit. If it were me, I would find a word that sounds like a persistent streaky breeze, a series of invisible but coloured streamers. It would be like a soliloquy, a long speech, like something in Welsh or some Semitic language, or an indigenous tongue from Patagonia, or all of them all together, a multilingual monologue which tells of how things are on the other side of the world, on the other side of things. My word for the wind would bridge distances, offer affinities, echo the past, ease into the future. It would work like poetry. And in contemplating all this, I remembered a short poem by F.T. Prince. It goes like this. She has decided that she no longer loves me. There is nothing to be done. I long ago as a child thought the tree sighed. Do I know whether my motion makes the wind that moves me? It may be good to presume it does. To anticipate that our movements have their various knock-on effects. We are, after all, threatened by the conditions we've helped to create. We are shaped by the planet our species has manipulated. I suddenly find myself thinking how much we are like the wind. Endless talkers. Wrecking balls. Conduits. Connectors. Fighters. Drifters. Answers. Agents of change.
the moody old wind might be an instructive metaphor for ourselves, to say the very least.